Please be seated. A Hmong Christian leader by the name of An was recently detained by authorities in Vietnam. An's interrogators made two demands of him. The first, they wanted him to stop leading Christian worship, inviting others to come and leading in the worship of the Lord. Secondly, they wanted him to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. An refused. Seeking to intimidate their captive, the authorities asked if he was afraid to die. This was An's answer. Everyone is afraid of death. And I think by that he meant to die by torture, which he was facing. Everyone is afraid of death. But to renounce Christ and stop leading others to worship would be worse than death. An's captors then attacked him, inflicting debilitating bodily harm. They did then release him with their threats ringing in his ears and the wounds in his body reminding him of their power. Now in our journey through the book of 1 Peter, we've been coming face to face with the reality of persecution. We've been facing it week after week here in this section of the book as we come now today to chapter 4. Our faith as followers in Christ, we've been learning, will be opposed in this world and we should anticipate persecution. Further, we must equip ourselves to stand our ground and remain loyal to Christ as this Hmong brother did. And I think as we hear of this account just coming from recent weeks, we ask the question naturally, would I stand in the face of such persecution? Would I stand to it? Would I be loyal to Christ? And even if I am never put in that position, how can I know that I'm growing in the kind of faith that would stand? How terrible it would be for us to say, well, that people in other parts of the world who are facing intense physical persecution, they need more faith than we do. We just don't have to worry about that. Well, we probably need to worry about it much more than we think, and many times we just simply skirt persecution so we don't ever have to deal with it. But all that being said, do you not want the kind of faith like this man that would stand loyal to Christ in the face of death? And how do we know if we're growing in that kind of faith? If our faith is real, genuine to the point that put me before persecutors who say renounce Christ or die, I would say it's better to die than to renounce Christ. How do we know? I think it comes down to a fundamental decision that orients our entire life. You do not make the decision to stand for Christ and endure persecution at the moment that you are arrested and hauled in before the authorities. You do not make the decision to stand for Christ when peer pressure, when peers pressure you to conform to the world. Or workmates mock Christ and invite you to join in. Or when extended family demands that you participate in their God-forsaking ways. That's not when you begin to stand for Christ. The decision is made far before that. 
The spiritual fortitude to endure suffering for Christ is grounded in a decision to orient your life to a certain perspective. That life-orienting decision is revealed here in 1 Peter chapter 4. So Peter continues to work with these believers who are facing intense persecution. And as he counsels them, he comes here, I think, in some respects to the heart of the matter of how we equip ourselves to stand in the face of persecution. Remember in chapter 3, he's been emphasizing this call to suffer and spoke of Christ in verse 18, which is the, the heart of our relationship that will lead us to suffer rightly. He says, verse 18 of chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. As we noted last week, I believe that phrase is saying that He died physically and He rose again. He lives in resurrection form today. The point being, then, as we drop down to verse 22 of chapter 3, that He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Christ is the victor. He has triumphed over sin and death. And so in light of His triumph, you too should suffer with Christ and stand loyal to Him. Now, continuing this theme... Into chapter 4, Peter calls us to make the same life-orienting decision that empowered Jesus to endure the cross and triumph over evil. It's fairly obvious to us as we work our way through it. It's not difficult, but I think it's profound to look at this decision at the heart of standing for Christ. It is the life-orienting decision made by every Christian who ever stands in the face of persecution, a decision that is made before the moment of persecution. The call here to us is simply this, in verses 1 and 2, to arm yourself with the mindset of a martyr. Arm yourself with the mindset of a martyr. Understood from a Christian perspective, what is this saying? Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the life of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now we'll work our way through these two verses somewhat plottingly and consider the point that is before us as we arm ourselves with this mindset, since, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now where does that take us back to? It certainly goes back to verse 18, right? Christ also suffered once for sins. So the suffering of Christ here is His physical death. Suffering for doing what is right, which is what these believers were facing. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we might say it this way, Jesus, your Savior, died... He was executed by men for doing good. He suffered the wrath of God, dying as a substitutionary sacrifice in your place. Now you, as the followers of Christ, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. What kind of language is that? It's militaristic terms, isn't it? We are at war. 
The laser beam from Satan's faith-destroying guns is dancing on our chest. Arm yourself. This is not a physical battle. There are some religions, arm yourself means literally get the machine gun. But here, in the call of Christ, we are to arm ourselves to die. To lay down our life as we face persecution. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And this, I think, is at the heart of this text, the key for us to grab. The Greek word could be translated insight or possibly even intention with this purpose. What was the insight or intention Jesus took to the cross? What orientation empowered Him to endure? It was in Him, and it led Him to endure the cross. Is it in us? What is this way of thinking? The answer is found in the last phrase of verse 1, including verse 2. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin is a really difficult way to put it. Uh, Peter's been on a roll here in chapter 3 and 4, making life rough for us. But he who has ceased from sin... Is, is, a, is a way of maybe that we wouldn't tend to say it, but it has led to a lot of difference of opinion on what Peter's saying. To remain consistent with the context is the key. He is not saying whoever suffers for Christ is purged from sin and reaches sinless perfection. Many of us could marshal a number of texts of Scripture that would make it clear that's not the point. You suffer for Christ and you become perfect. No, that's not the point. It's not that all believers who die are delivered from sin in heaven. Now that's true enough, but that does not do anything to the development of the thought in chapter 3 and 4. Yeah, it's true. If we die, we go to heaven where we have ceased from sin in heaven. True enough, but not the point here. This is not a Pauline concept like we read earlier today. I think the Romans 6 passage is an excellent parallel to what we're discussing here today because it talks about the struggle with the flesh and our death with Christ. But I don't think that Peter is introducing that concept here of our mystical union with Christ. We've died to sin. What is the context? It is arm yourself with Christ's perspective, with His insight, with His life orientation. Fit yourself with that thinking. So I think the idea then contextually is when we choose to suffer for Christ, we demonstrate that we have broken away from a life dominated by sin. And that will follow through very logically the rest of the context and fit, I think, very nicely. When we suffer for Christ, it is an evidence that we have broken free from the domination of sin in our life, simply living according to the passions of the flesh. We have ceased from sin then, not in sinless perfection. We have ceased from sin in this way, verse 2. So don't be troubled by the difficult phrase there in verse 1, we have ceased from sin. We just say it this way, we've broken free from the dominion of sin, and here's what that looks like, verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So link very hard, ceased from sin, to this way of life. Not living 
for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the way of thinking. Live in the flesh, that is, live your life in this world, not for human passions. Here's the decision. This is the life-orienting perspective, the insight that empowered Jesus to endure the cross for the joy set before Him. It is the way of thinking that we are to adopt. To no longer live in the flesh according to human passions, but according to the will of God. I said it was simple, but it's profound. And it's right there where our battle is in following Christ. Those who are prepared to stand for Christ in the face of persecution are those who have decided to honor the will of God above the cravings of the flesh. Those who are preparing to stand for Christ arm themselves with a life orientation that subjects their fleshly passions and desires to the dominion of Christ and obedience to God's will. Now this is true with money, time, sex, pleasure, food, entertainment. It's true in all of these areas of our life. But contextually here, it is maybe perhaps especially the natural desire to be safe and accepted. I want people to accept me, to fit into the culture and the context of my social settings. And I want to be safe. It is not necessarily, innately, an evil desire but it becomes corrupted as the flesh craves to be safe. And it can so crave to be safe and accepted that it puts loyalty to Christ in a second position. Arm yourself with this thinking. It's simple. But you have to put the will of God first and the desires of the flesh next. The driving motivation of our lives is to be the will of God. Now, this is what we see in the Christian martyrs, without exception. Think of Acts chapter 5. Remember the apostles were jailed there. They were jailed for preaching the gospel of Christ. They had a, quite an interesting delivery that night, and they went right back to the temple and began to preach again. The same message they'd just been put in prison for. And remember, the authorities rebuked them and said, we strictly told you not to preach in the name of Christ anymore. And what did they say? Here it is. We must obey God rather than men. You see it there. We will do the will of God. Now, think human passions. We can tend to miss this because we weren't there smelling the prison. We weren't inside the night before. That was not a happy place to be in a Roman prison. They were facing a beating, ridicule, ostracism, and they were very possibly going right back to the cell they just got out of. 
The human passions that we have, the desires of the flesh, want nothing to do with any of that. But they said with these natural cravings, not wanting to go back to that prison, not wanting to be beaten, not wanting to be ostracized and ridiculed, we must obey God first. Your will is telling us to disobey His will, and no matter what, we can't do that. There it is in Acts chapter 5. There it is with this Hmong leader on. Did you hear it? Everyone is afraid of death, he said. Again, I think in context, everyone's afraid to be tortured to death. There's not a human being alive that welcomes that. Christians aren't fit with some sort of concept in their brain that I don't hurt. And I can accept any beating that comes. No, that's fearful. He says, the passions of my flesh want nothing to do with being beaten today. But the decision to arm himself with Christ's way of thinking resulted in him saying this, to renounce Christ would be worse than death. There's the human passions and natural desires being set aside to say, I will do the will of God and let Him take care of the details. And so it is with our life if we're going to be loyal to Christ. Do you understand the battle of yielding your natural cravings and passions and desires to the will of God? Are you in that world? Is your life orientation driven by Christ's rule over your life? Or are you primarily driven by wants? I want money, entertainment, priorities, goals, relationships, attitudes, all driven by what feels good to me. I want to see what I want to see and hear what I want to hear and be where I want to be, and do what I want to do, and that's what ultimately drives me, and then I fit Jesus in here and there. If that's the orientation of your life, to glut the cravings and desires that drive you, even if they're fairly respectable in society, if that's what's really fundamentally driving you, then stand in An's place and you're going to fold. And we're going to fold because we're folding every day of our lives. We're letting our own desires and passions, many times sinful, lead us away from what Christ wants. And we have not come to the place of maturity in our lives where we realize that His will is what's best. His will is always supreme. His will is always the best route. Not glutting the cravings of the flesh. Our capacity to withstand persecution then hinges on what motivates our daily decisions. A life calibrated to the passions of the flesh is a life oriented toward betraying Christ. A life calibrated to obey God's will is a life oriented to standing for Christ. Now in verses 3 through 5, Peter reminds us that we have been delivered from a life dominated by fleshly passions. This is not who we are to live in line with the desires of the flesh. 
And this, I think, also helps us understand that we're in the right context as we've interpreted verses 1 and 2. That it's this battle with the flesh and arming ourselves then with the mindset of Christ that seeks to do His will. We've been delivered from the passions of the flesh. We read now in verses 3 through, five, three through, through 6, rather, living for the will of God is the life to which we've been called. So if we put it into another imperative, we're to take on or arm ourselves with the mindset of a martyr. We are to recognize our deliverance from sin and death. Secondly, verse 3. For the time, verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Seeing the context again, we're talking about standing for Christ, and then we're dealing with these passions of the flesh. Putting the two together. It's that mindset, that way of thinking, that orientation against the dictates of the flesh. This list indicates that Peter's readers were once mired in the moral debauchery that characterized the Roman, Greco-Roman paganism. Prior to being born again, his readers glutted their passions in that sensual world. That was their world. You notice here in verse 3, the time in the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Do you see that word want? That's the same word that's translated up above the will of God. What God wants and what the pagans want are in the Greek text put here in direct contrast. Now, we have different English words, but there's a contrast and a connection here. God wants one thing for your life. Those driven by the flesh want something else. Living under those wants was your former way of life. It was marked, as we see here in this list, to live in sensuality. That means living without moral restraint, especially in the area of sexual desire. I want to do what feels good. And I'll pursue that. Secondly, passions. Here it is the word lust or sinful cravings of any kind. Wanting what does not accord with God's will. Drunkenness. Getting drunk is a decision to choose irresponsible release over loving others. On the one hand, you're not fit to actively love them, and on the other hand, you're probably harming some people. Drunkenness is a self-centered, self-serving escape that finds its temporary peace in stupor rather than in the joy of God's indwelling spirit. That's who you were. That was your life. Orgies. That is a feast or banquet convened to provide a platform for unrestrained immorality, wild parties, that type of thing. The sort of scene that shows itself in so many of the stories in the media today. The movies of our day so often picturing this kind of scene and setting. It's attractive. It invites us in. It's sensual. There's no rules. No one cares. No one's watching that has any interest in morality. That type of thing. And drinking parties, very similar, where sensual passions are freed by the influence of alcohol. 
And then the more general lawless idolatry, whether breaking man's law or God's law, Peter's not specific here, but our fleshly desires aligning with false gods. Whether that is wasting money on a status symbol or wrongly glutting sexual desire or giving way to laziness or whatever it would be, some dead idol serves as our functional God. Some motivation pulls us away from God's will. That's where you were. That was your world before Christ redeemed you. Now at verse 4, Peter connects the godless way of life his readers once pursued to the people they pursued it with. To the company that they kept when they lived this way. And that's where the rub comes with persecution. Verse 4, with respect to this, this way of life, this sensual glutting of the passions, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Letting loose, letting the passions of the flesh drive us, this flood of debauchery, why on earth would you not want to join us anymore? Now, some of us were saved in the home of faithful Christian parents who oriented their lives to the will of God. Some of us had that great privilege. Others, maybe not so much in your home, but God in His mercy saved you from a lot of immorality as far as the influences around your life when you came to trust Christ as Savior. But there's some among us here. God delivered you right out of the mess, didn't He? He brought you right out of the wickedness and the godless way of life and you were surrounded by a group of friends that pulled you into that, that kept you in that, and that rejoiced in your, your participation. Now, you know this experientially. That's not an easy world to get out of. And many times there is this confusion. You ran with us. You ran with us as a crowd. Now you've trusted Jesus, and why? Why this strange reorientation of life? It's tough on your relationship with those people, isn't it? It's difficult to extract yourself. This is a conversation in the grace of God and in the joy of my heart I've been able to have through the years with people. How do we get out of this world? How do we love people? and not turn away from them and our care for them, but yet at the same time, they don't get this, and it's an offense. They're surprised initially, but then there's a fundamental shift in life orientation for them as well. It moves from surprise, verse 4, to they malign you. First, they don't get it. But the confusion morphs into direct opposition. From surprise to ridicule. From incredulity to opposition. From why don't you join us anymore to join us or we'll make your life miserable. This is where the call of Christ and the will of God come into direct conflict with those who want to live according to the passions of the flesh. Suffering rejection in such an environment, Peter encourages his readers to look long. 
And they were in a context, let me stop to say, in which these idolatries were very real and very systemic to the culture. The worship of false gods, often accompanied by sensual parties and godless practices, that was their world. Failing to participate could be seen as shrinking from one's civic duty, angering the gods, disrespecting your family. The Christian's refusal to participate in the immoral fabric of a corrupt society invited widespread opposition. They don't understand you, and that finally translates into ridicule. Despising you. Here's what he says, verse 5. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The final judgment is not what unbelievers say about you. It is what God says about them before His judgment seat. We may fear persecution. We may fear the pain. But Jesus told us ultimately not to even do that. He said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I don't know how else to think of that and read that than to picture myself before someone who's got a baseball bat of some sort and is going to beat me to death. And Jesus says, listen, if you see eternity for what it really is, don't fear that. You say, really? I don't think Jesus is just being ridiculous here, but He understands the wonder of heaven. He understands its reality. He understands its glory. And He says, somebody standing there ready to take your life, don't fear them. What you should fear is standing before God. Standing before God who can judge eternally should be the greatest fear. So we must arm ourselves with the conviction that persecution is never the last word and never the greatest thing to fear. Preparing to suffer for Christ includes the recognition that Christ is the eternal judge. If I grasp this fact by faith, then I do not live my life for the moment. If I grasp this fact, I do not live my life for whatever pleasure moves me. I order my life to do the will of the One who will pronounce eternal judgment. He will either condemn me from His presence or say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. If I can put my faith and trust and confidence in that, it will overwhelm the fears of this life and the intimidation of the persecutor. So, we have to ask ourselves a question as we arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Do you want the acclaim and approval and respect of this sensual, God-denying world? Is that what you're living for? Or do you want the approval of the One who will judge the living and the dead? 
Not much of a choice, is it, sitting in a safe church building? But this is a good place to ask the question, a good place to make a decision, and a good place from which to leave and live it out in a far more dangerous environment. Unbelievers can judge the living, but there is a higher throne where the living and the dead will be eternally judged. And so, as I say to the teens on Wednesday nights over and over again, you cannot be popular in two places. You're going to have to pick this world or heaven. You're going to have to pick this world or the body of Christ. You can't be popular in both places. You must choose whose will you are going to follow and whose judgment you want to avoid. As verse 6 continues somewhat on this theme, Peter throws another one at us here that's difficult, but let's work our way through it just briefly. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Another challenging statement with 3.19-21 and 4.1 and 4.6. As you put all those together, we have a minefield of interpretive issues here in Peter, but uh, we pass through it somewhat here today, but another challenge. I'm not going to go into lengthy discussion about the meaning of this verse. We certainly could, but let me summarize the conclusions that I've drawn, and you can work through it and know there are other opinions on this difficult statement. But I do believe there's a way of reading this verse that does match the context appropriately. First of all, Remaining consistent with how we have looked at death in this section of First Peter, the death here I take to be literal death. They are not spiritually dead. This is why the gospel was preached to those who were spiritually dead, and that would fit the context in some sense, those who lived under these passions, verse 3. But the death in this section is always physical death. Jesus died in the flesh. So I'm going to take it that way, that this is those who are now really dead. When they were alive, not after their death, secondly, but while they were alive, the gospel was preached to them. So Peter reminds believers here that we can count on ultimate vindication because, as we see here, The gospel was preached to those who are dead, but now they are made alive in the Spirit. So secondly, I believe this preaching to the dead took place while they were alive. Not a verse that envisions Christ going back to hell and preaching to people that were dead there, which links with 3.19, but in a way that I don't think is appropriate uh, to the context. Thirdly, I take live in the Spirit the way God does to refer to the resurrection life. And that fits nicely with 3.18. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. You now, verse 6, live in the Spirit the way God does. Yes, believers die, is what Peter's saying. They are judged as the offspring of Adam, as we all are. They are judged in the flesh the way everyone is. And so some have suggested that it may be that the critics 
of these Christians are saying, listen, you guys die too. You're judged just like everyone else is in that sense. True enough, but the Gospel was preached to those who are dead and they now live in the Spirit. They now have resurrection life. And so in light of the coming judgment of God, we have hope and eternal life. Other interpretations are suggested, but I think this fits the context. The judgment of unbelievers against Christians is overwhelmed by the resurrection life that we have in Christ by responding to the Gospel. A tough verse. But putting it all together, not a tough point to grasp. Arm yourself with the mindset of a Christian martyr, which says no to physical passions when they deny the will of God. It says do what God calls us to do first. To order our lives to deny the fleshly passions and lifestyle from which we have been delivered to live in active obedience to the will of God is the call upon our lives and it is that which fits us to stand for Christ. So it's interesting. We've even, the discussions have been going around here as we've worked our way through this book of 1 Peter. We just don't face this kind of intense persecution. We don't. But we do face ridicule and maligning in our world there are people that are surprised and then ultimately hateful of us for not believing certain things and doing certain things and the heat's getting turned up all the time but again i come back to the idea whatever we face physically or do not face physically are we living with the mindset of christ the will of god first and the will of God, we're learning here, often includes suffering abuse of one form or another because we follow Christ and obey the Lord. Are you good for that? Is that alright with you? As a follower of Christ, to know that this world is going to oppress and going to resist you. We must be. We're followers of a crucified Savior. And He's not reigning yet from Jerusalem's throne as He reigns in our hearts, as He is our Lord and Savior, so we will run into opposition. That's our life. We need to be accepting that and preparing for it. Actively ordering our lives in a direction that says it's better to die than to disobey the will of God. Now what we're gaining here from Peter comes right out of the example of Christ. And I want to show you this here. I won't have you turn to these passages. You can, certainly, but I'll, I'll put them here on the a graphic here before us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, an unbeliever, and I think that's significant, to this unbeliever, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He later says to his enemies, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Think the thinking of Christ. See it developing here in the text of John particularly. Chapter 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me.
I do nothing, he says in chapter 8, on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he comes to the end of his life, what he has said to his enemies, what he has said to his disciples, what he has said to people in the give and take of life, even in a common setting as looking for water on the wayside, he prays earnestly to the Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Is it any accident then that we come to that moment in the life of Christ when he is facing death by torture? And what is the thinking that pulls him through? What is the thinking that drives him to endure the cross, suffering physically in a way that is unimaginable to us, but suffering even more in a separation from his Father, something that we maybe can't fully even begin to grasp? What is it that takes him through? Here it is in Luke 22. Not my will but yours be done. That's the mindset of a true martyr. This is the mindset of one who has broken free from the dominating power of sin in his or her life. From the passions that say, seek security. Seek the approval of others. Don't get into any trouble. Jesus knew what he was facing. And the thing that brought him through was, I do the will of God. There may be some among us here today, and you're saying, why on earth would I want to join a people who are called to suffer? And why on earth would I want to live my life in conformity to the will of somebody else? Even if you say it's God, why? I want to live my own life and do my own thing, not be troubled all of my life having to ask what God wants me to do. You may not be that blunt, but if that's what's really going on in your soul today, you just say, why would anybody want this? To be ready to die and to always be thinking of the will of another? If you're asking that question, let me say, please hear me, you have never seen the splendor of Jesus Christ. You don't ask that question if you've seen His splendor. You have not come to terms with the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners to provide rescue from sin. You haven't come to terms with the fact that He rose from the dead in triumph and He reigns today in heaven's throne. You have not come to terms with the fact that you will one day stand before Christ as your judge and that it's that which you should fear above all else. The answer, if that sense is not there, is to turn in repentance and dependent trust upon Christ today. To cry out to God for forgiveness of sin and trust His saving grace. 
That's what's before you. Come to Him. Be reconciled to God and see the glory and splendor that is His. And it is given to us as His people as an act of mercy and grace. Do that, and you will come to the place where you too believe it is better to, to die than to deny Christ. Because to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to reconcile with the judge of the living and the dead, which is to be fully alive. It is to live in the Spirit and ultimately to receive resurrection life forever. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, this is certainly a call for us to take assessment of our lives. Is the driving, central motivator of my life what we see here on the screen before us? Not my will, but yours be done. Get into your heart. Get deep inside and look at it. Where is that not your life? What are you doing? What decisions are you making? What goals are you setting? What attitudes are you permitting that does not fit under that rubric? You're living according to what the passions of your own desires are leading you to want and do rather than according to the will of God. Here then, as we come as a church today before the living word is a place to consider, to act, to repent, and to grow. Wherever those areas are alive in your life, in those places you are not fitting yourself to stand for Christ. Let's turn from them. In the grace of God, let's talk with one, one another about them. Let's confess our sins to each other, pray with one another, and learn to root out those areas that are not under the will of God. And by God's grace, then, He will fit us with the kind of faith that stands. Father, how foolish it would be for any one of us to proudly claim that we would be willing to die for Christ. All we need is Peter. And we thank You for his example, as hard as it was, to boast of his willingness to stand for You and then to cave in. But then by Your grace to be fitted as one who stood for You to death. And I pray that you would fit us with that same type of faith. A faith that is winsome, not harsh. A faith that is vibrant, not simply academic. A mindset that is not militaristic in the wrong sense, but filled with love. And I pray, Father, that with that mindset you would fit us to stand in devotion no matter what comes. If it's the ridicule of kids at school, 
the pressure of workmates to join in in sensual pleasure, the pressure of neighbors or extended family, or even those living within the walls of our own home. Wherever the pressure comes, I ask that you will fit us to live as Jesus lived, to do the will of God. We need your aid to that end, asking again that you would draw to light those that are separated from Christ, that you will bring saving grace this day. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand and consider in silence what we've heard.